Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce my guest for today, I wanted just to let you know or to remind you, if you've already heard me talk about it, that I have a support group that I run online. It's now on Wednesday evenings from 6 to 7.30 Pacific Standard Time. It's every other week. And it's something that you can find out more about on my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com. It's called the SAM Group Support After Manipulation. It's a really lovely, supportive environment for people who are just coming out of systems of control, whether it's a relationship or a cultic kind of group, multi-level marketing group, whatever it is that made you feel that someone else was really controlling you and manipulating you. It's also available for the families and friends of those who are in these situations or who have come out of these environments so they can learn about how to be present, available, supportive, and also how to help intervene on behalf of their friend or loved one when they really want to be able to help the person they care about become free again. And so I think a lot of people who are the friends and family value being able to hear from former members, from people who have left to find out what helped them leave and what's helped them since they've been out. There have been a couple people, you know, who have mentioned to me actually throughout the year that they've been involved in other groups and sometimes have had a wonderful very kind of specialized, supportive feeling in the group. And other times they've had really negative experiences where they felt ganged up on, they felt mm, that they weren't free to really talk. They felt like they couldn't quite trust the person who was running it or the people who were running it. And if you feel like it hasn't been a good experience for you or it hasn't felt safe, or you have felt singled out in some unhealthy way, then know that it might not be because you've done something wrong. It just might be that you're not being responded to in a healthy way by people who have been educated about how to do this. Even with support groups, it can still be kind of buyer beware. So if it's not a good experience, don't feel like you have to stay. And if you want to find out more about the group, again, go to my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com. I've gotten a lot of really nice feedback about how safe it has felt for people. So check it out if you feel like it would be helpful for you. And now for today, we have Perry Bulwer. Perry was born in Port Alberni, British Columbia, Canada, where he joined the Children of God after dropping out of high school at age 16. He then spent the next two decades living in Children of God communes across the world. And in 1991, at the age of 36, he was finally able to escape the cult. 
Perry now advocates for second-generation cult survivors and continues to shed light on the children of God. He is the author of the new memoir, Misguided, My Jesus Freak Life in a Doomsday Cult, a unique firsthand account of a life spent in the children of God, the millenarian doomsday cult under the sway of the charismatic leader, David Berg. You can find out more about Perry and his work at www.perrybulwer.blogspot.com. This is a very powerful conversation that I had with our guest, and I'm really happy that you're going to be able to hear it. Here's Perry now. I am so delighted to have Perry Bulwer with me today because there is such an important story that you have to share that you wrote about that is very complicated, multidimensional, but really about a group that uh, more people should know about because it affected so many people. And I feel like there are so many walking wounded from this group. And I, I'm really glad you're having a chance to tell your story and really honor what happened there, honor other people's experiences there. So if you don't mind taking a few moments and introducing yourself just in a general way, then we'll get into specifics. Go for it. My name is Perry Bulwer. I'm um, talking to you from my hometown, Port Alberni, small little mill town on Vancouver Island, very remote. And it happens to be the place where I joined the infamous Children of God cult when I was 16 years old. That was in 1972. A lot of people, even here in town, after my book came out uh, last month, I did a signing at our local independent bookstore. People were shocked that there was a cult here in town back then. It's a very little-known story. And overall, um, Rachel, you mentioned in your intro now, and also you mentioned similar... I I listened to a a podcast you did with Daniela Mastunik-Young, who was born into the Children of God. And in that um, podcast, you made the same similar comment that this is a little-known story that more people should know about. And so that's one of my motives for writing the book. And there's others. But um, yeah, I'm just here to uh, tell the story. And I'm really glad that you're um, giving me this chance to uh, bring some attention to it because it's far more than just my story. It's more about the story of as you said, the walking wounded, uh, primarily thousands of children who were born in this group who still today suffer the consequences. And of course, the people who, like me who joined and the, the terminology we use, which is now common throughout the, the world of cult studies, first generation, second generation. I think that started in the Children of God cult. But I, even though I was 16 when I joined, I was considered a first generation because I did join. And I use that word when I in writing with quotation marks because nobody really joins a cult, but it's a convenient way. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know, obviously the first generation, thousands of them have suffered too, but nothing like the children of the children of God. It's a devastating story and it continues today. And so I 
one of the main motives for writing my story was to highlight their stories, not to speak for them, but to support them and to confirm what they've been saying for years, to confirm their stories of abuse and um, and to be an advocate for them. So that's, in a nutshell, who I am and what I'm doing with this story. It's really interesting. I mean, I've worked with people who have gotten involved, who joined in air quotes, and I haven't had a chance to talk to someone who was born male who got involved in this group. I have talked to people about the impact that this group had on their siblings, on their father, on their sons, but I haven't talked to a person who is not you know, born female in this group. And so I'm really happy to be able to to talk about that. I know, and and this is something I probably mentioned on Daniela's as well, that I will always feel connected in some interesting way to this group because it was my first case. It was my first client having a woman who had eight children born all in different countries, in squalor, in um and she came and was telling me her story and I was just newly licensed. And I have to say, I don't know if I offered her everything she needed. I learned from her about what this group is. And uh, I'll always be grateful to her for that, that she was able to trust me, but also then really educate me about how this can happen and what the leader was like. And it was very interesting. It was interesting also when years ago, I don't know if it's still out there, but when I was on Larry King, it was about this group that he wanted to talk to people about it. And I was worried that it was going to be sensationalistic, but it was it was handled well. And with the guests that he had, there were a lot of tears, but they talked about not only as being female, that what it was like for them, but that one of them had a brother who had committed suicide because he couldn't stop abuse targeted at his sisters and at his mother. And so this is a, it was a very cruel, cruel group for everyone involved. I'm wondering then about you at age 16 and what led up to you being open and or interested in something different. Yes. Um, and just briefly before I get to that, uh, something you mentioned about your second client ever educating you about this group. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but I, I would really like to come back to that towards the end when I was in seeking therapy myself because I have a very similar experience because the professional health professionals I went to for help knew nothing about this. It just really hit me. When you said that, it's something I would like to talk a bit about my recovery afterwards um, and my experiences with that. But to get back to your question on what led me as a 16-year-old in this remote little town to get drawn into this, this group, I trace it right back to my Catholic indoctrination. I was raised as a Catholic by my mother. Uh, my father did not attend church with us. In fact, he never spoke about religion to me ever. So I never knew what he believed or didn't believe. But my mother took me and my sister to Catholic Church from my earliest age. I became—I eventually became a, an altar boy. So I was really steeped in the, the Catholic dogma. And that really informed my worldview. 
So I was a believer in 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 the, the Christian message. I, I describe this whole process a little bit more uh, uh, deeply, but um, essentially there was no. I had no other counter, um, other voices giving me other points of view, and I, I suspect there were unbelievers in my you know larger family, you know. But back then, growing up in the '60s, I don't think it was very polite to talk to to challenge people's religious views, and and certainly not challenge how people raise their children. I, I don't recall ever hearing any view opposing Christianity or criticizing Christianity. In fact, my wider culture, growing up in Canada, um, you could say it was a Christian culture generally. I mean. And I a lot of um, consumed a lot of media that was Christian focused. All the Bible-based movies that were coming out in the late fifties and sixties. In fact, I remember um, uh, as a Catholic, we didn't read the Bible. We didn't have a Bible at home. But you know, I, I attended um, catechism classes and studied with the priests. And the movie came out, um, the Bible in the beginning. The opening sequence is this 10 minutes of the creation of the world, volcanoes and blah, 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 and then suddenly Adam and Eve appear. Anyway, um, my priest encouraged me to go see that movie rather than to actually read the Bible and, and what the Bible says. So, I mean, it was the wider culture was reinforcing my Christian views as well. So now I'm growing up in the 60s, and it's the hippies and the, the 60 generation and all of that. I was growing disillusioned with the Catholic Church. By four, age 14, I stopped going to church. I, I, I was like typical of teenagers, I think. You see a lot, you see a lot of hypocrisy in the adult world, you know, like he's kind of really hypersensitive to anything that's hypocritical and different different little things just struck me um, as hypocritical with the church, but if you had asked me to explain it, I probably couldn't, but I just stopped going. But I was still a believer. So I still maintain those beliefs. And that sort of spiritual urge I had was fed by other, especially music. So the the the, the rock, the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar came out. And when that came out, theater groups were putting on the play in my hometown at our high school. Like I had memorized the entire album. I had the album. Um, when it came to my high school auditorium as a play, you know, professional actors, not student actors. At the end, there was a, at the finale, they called up audience members. I mean, I got up, I went up on stage. I was like, you know, it was like, it was feeding something in me. And then there was, you know, other, like George Harrison was another big influence. He came out um, after the Beatles with a three album a triple album, All Things Must Pass. Every song was very spiritual. That's the, the album that had My Sweet Lord. So I was, you know, and, and here, there's a song in there where he, he talks about Jesus and you don't need a church to be a believer. And I was like, yeah, that's, you know. So that was that in-between period after I left the Catholic Church. So for a couple of years, those are my influences. And then along come the children of God. So I'm 16. I'm you know, an average student, I just transferred to the high school from my junior or middle high school where I was doing well there, but now I'm in a new environment. I felt lost, wasn't fitting in, you know, and, and I had this sort of still this kind of searcher mentality. Like I was worried about growing up 
in this mill town and just becoming a, a mill worker like my family and everybody I knew. When I was 15, I made a hitchhiking trip to California for the summer with my friend. We were going to go to uh, Disneyland. That was our big you know, summer trip. Um, so I experimented with LSD down there and, and that kind of experience kind of, I interpreted the, the, the LSD experience as a spiritual um, awakening a glimpse into the spirit world. So all of this was sort of bubbling up and working on me. And then I meet these children of God, who at the time, at the beginning, they were this very almost conservative, in a way, Christian um, group. They came, they were part of the wider Jesus movement and Jesus people. There's different Jesus people groups with different names. I didn't know it at the time. They were considered one of the more radical of the of these groups. But their message was really just a very basic evangelical Christian message. But they modeled their lifestyle on the early Christians in the book of Acts, where you live communally, you drop out of society, and you just preach the gospel. And the mission was to preach the gospel in all the world before Jesus comes back. So I meet these people. It didn't take very long where I started going to their commune every day after school. They're teaching me basic Bible lessons, and I saw this as a way out of my life. They were offering me an escape out of my what I felt like being trapped in this hometown with no options, and I didn't, um, I didn't know, I didn't see any future for myself. And they manipulated the Catholic dogma that I'd been raised in. Uh, later on, you know, um, the leader of this group actually encouraged us to evangelize the Catholics because there was so much commonality. So they actually really exploited my Catholic training, and I, I just kind of fell right into it. And it took literally just a few weeks. I met them in April, and in May I was already dropping out of school, leaving home, and moving into the commune. The picture that you paint there is a really important one because you're talking about being kind of primed for an experience like this, being open to it, having what so often is this perfect storm. When when people are looking back and having a moment of reflection and wondering how they got involved in something like this, I think you painted this fantastic picture. You were searching, you were open and also what they provided for you was something spiritual, harmless, really. And so, you know, one of the things when people ask me, what's the difference between a cult and a religion? One of the mainstays of it for me is deception, that you really don't know what you're getting involved in and what their intention is for you and what's going to be happening next, what their ask is going to be next of you. Because what you're offered usually at the beginning makes sense and feels healing and feels clear and feels spiritual and safe. And so then you lower your defenses, you know, and and also, and I've said this before on the podcast, that we often assume that what's true for us is true for other people. And if we're trustworthy seekers and spiritual people, we're going to assume that is true of the people who are guiding us here, even the leader of this particular cult. Why would you think otherwise? And so, right, and then you're in before you realize what what really is going to be happening to you there. Yeah, and they, you know, they um, 
you've probably heard that term love bombing, you know, and that was very prominent. Um, I grew up, so there was a lot of joy, a lot of singing. Music was a major recruiting tool, going out on the streets and using music to attract people within the commune itself. Um, This concept of holy hugging, you know, greeting one another with the whole, like this was a mind-blowing thing to me because in my own personal family, we weren't like a huggy family. We didn't, you know, obviously my mother growing up as kids, she hugged us and stuff, but hugging as a greed, that wasn't even a thing in society. I've I've brought this up to people that, because I think people seem to forget, but, or maybe it was unique to where I grew up, but in the wider society, people didn't hug like they do today. You didn't, like, hugging is common now as a greeting. Everybody's hugging everywhere. You hug as a greeting and to goodbye. And, it like, I watch reality shows, you know, everybody's hugging each other. That was not a thing for me growing up. And so now I meet these people. They're all living together. There's all this joy. They're hugging me all the, like, there's this genuine love and stuff. But to get to your point about this deception, that was right from the beginning. They knew what they were doing because I did not know for months that there was a leader of this group. I mean, they slowly introduced me to what this group was, the large, like that there were other communes nearby, et cetera. But I, I had no idea of the leadership structure. And they had a very deliberate indoctrination process where for the first three months, a new recruit like me joining was considered what they called a babe. And that comes from a verse, I believe it's in Peter um, in the New Testament, uh, uh, how, you know, you give milk to babies. You only give strong meat to adults. And it's a metaphor that for new recruits, you don't give them the really strong doctrines. You give them all the milky doctrines, the easy, easy to accept, the very Bible-based stuff, very right straight from the Bible. And that's another thing, because as a Catholic, I never even saw a Bible other than what the priest read. What really intrigued me the very first time I even met them was they had their little pocket Bibles, and they were showing me verses in the Bible. I mean, that was mind-blowing to me. I, I considered the Bible a holy book. But I'd never seen it or read it myself. And now they were showing me here, look, here's what it says. You know, when they were getting me to become born again and to say the sinner's prayer, they're showing me verses. Everything they believe, they would show me a verse. They would reinforce it with the Bible. So it was hard for me to resist that because I already came in with this strong belief that the Bible's true. I had no reason to believe the Bible isn't true. So that's what got me hooked. And so, like I said, for th- the first three months, they're just teaching you all this stuff. So the leader of this group, the founder of it, David Berg, he very early on begot- began writing. He was he lived separately from his followers. He'd write letters to them. And these were called Mo letters. Well, my very first day in the commune, they read me one of these letters, but they didn't tell me. All they told me about it was, oh, here, this is a letter from uh, one of our spiritual advisors or something very benign. Like they didn't say, this is our leader. It was, here's just this gospel track. And it was a very simple one-page letter called Diamonds of Dust. And it was a very simple reflection on how, you know, it had some Bible verses in there, how we're just little bits of dust that reflect God's light, etc. 
very benign kind of letter. So that I was reading these letters, not knowing who they're written by and what's really behind them. So that's for the first three months. After the three months, you're now considered indoctrinated enough to get to the next level. So the next three months is when you get to learn the very esoteric teachings of the group, who David Berg was, who we called Moses. I didn't even know his name, David Berg, because even his name was kept secret from us, even from those in that next three months of indoctrination where we're taught his mythology, his origin story as the so-called end-time prophet of God. So I only knew him as Moses. We, I didn't even learn his real name till a few years later. So that's how it started. They, they hook you in, and then there's this deliberate indoctrination process in stages. It's so interesting. So if we can branch off into that for a moment, and before we come back to your story, you know, David Berg and the Mo letters. Wow, I haven't heard that phrase in like decades. That is amazing. You're taking me back. That is, it's amazing. Also seeing the the illustrations in these pamphlets and booklets and just how now in retrospect, creepily sexual they were, but it was supposed to be everyone was happy doing this and giving over themselves to, you know, to him. When you look at David Berg from the outside, you think, oh, like, oh, there's something that's not right about the way he's sort of leering and the way he looks is not at all appealing. Um, and I mean that just, in, yes, in a superficial way, but also just the way he looks fine, totally fine and happy with what's happening around him. What's happening around him is so destructive and damaging and he is sort of, he's so disconnected. And so people will ask, you know, what, what was the appeal and what was he like and what drove him? And and within that context, people are, I think, going to feel special being chosen by him. But to the outside world, he doesn't really look like he's altogether a healthy guy. And so I was I was actually always wondering about him and his past and what he was like. So what can you teach us about him? It's interesting because one thing that makes this story so complicated is, you know, we're talking about a 50-year history. I mean, they, he he formed his little group in 69, basically in California, there was a lot of different stages of development and evolution in this group. And so in the beginning, like I said, like the, the those images that you're referring to and, and seeing of him, those came much later. In those early years, we not only, I, I'd never even seen a photo of him. And for, it, it, it probably was 10 or more years before I'd even knew what he actually looked like. Um, so in those in the beginning, if there was any cartoon characterization of him, he was usually um, depicted with a lion's head. <laughs> and, really? Yes. Um, and there's a story to that. Um, I mean, that was a few years later after I joined, but I, I don't know, know exactly where it, that it may be related to the um, you know the lion witch and wardrobe. You know the that series where 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 the lion is a representative of Jesus, or they had Gold Lion publishers publishing all their books in Hong Kong. I mean, there's I, I don't ex exactly know, but the point is is that he his true image was never known made known to us, and it wasn't until the 
late 70s, I believe, <clears throat> mid-70s, when there, a photo of him in Tenerife, which is, we're getting ahead of the story, but he he got exposed in the media with with this religious prostitution um, that was going on in Tenerife, Spain, and a photo was published. I, even then, I didn't see that. I only saw that photo after the fact. So we didn't see pictures of him. We didn't know. We didn't know what he looked like. He had this complicated series of prophecies that he published in various letters, which was part of that that three-month um, indoctrination about his, who he was. So it, it, And it goes way back to his mother being a famous evangelist. And so he has this very long origin story of uh, uh, he claims that it was foreordained while he was in his mother's womb, just like John the Baptist, that he was going to be a prophet. He, he sort of steals the John the Baptist story and applies it to himself. You know, then there's a lot, a lot, a, a series of other prophecies his own mother gave. So there's this long, and I actually devote an entire chapter in my book to this because I felt it was important for people to understand because they have the question that you asked, like, why did I follow this guy? What was it that made us follow him? And so I, I stopped my own narrative in the book once I get to that point and give a whole chapter detailing his origin myth and how I was convinced by the end of that, I was convinced that he, he was the end time prophet. He claims specific verses in the old Testament refer to him directly. Like, so there's verses in the book of Ezekiel, Isaiah, several others, um, Hosea, I believe that specifically refer to a King David in the latter days. And he, he provides this, um, theological sort of explanation for why he is that King David, you know, and he backs it up with all these prophecies and other people coming along. And by that time, I'm already so hooked into this group that this is all making total sense to me. I mean, you know, as an outsider reading that, if you don't have all the influences I had coming to it, you're, all, you're going to be totally skeptical and all the red flags are going up. But that's what I mean. They had this very purposeful indoctrination process. They wait until they think you're ripe and ready for this message, and then they hit you with it. And so that chapter ends with him specifically prophesying um, specific dates for Jesus to return, which was 1993. And he sets out a seven-year period of events that have to happen. I was convinced by that, and it was that belief, my belief that he was the end time prophet and that he was his predictions were real is what kept me in the group even later when I experienced and witnessed abuses, I continued believing this was all going to be resolved because Jesus is coming back real soon, and then all my doubts and questions they're all going to be answered. It is difficult for outsiders to understand, but we're kept in the dark about who he really is, and then we're fed this mythology of of his life, and it's all supported by the Bible. You know, everything he writes, again, goes back to the Bible. Here's a verse, and here's another verse, and then read these verses together. And it's that use of the Bible, as I explained earlier, that I believed was true, that helped convince me. 
it's very insidious sort of indoctrination process. Insidious, indeed. And I think also the use of language is interesting. I mean, I wonder also about him having a lion's head that, I mean, it's certainly going to be this sort of prototype of, you know, sort of male virility and, you know, and also the, you know, the king of the jungle, but also the protector. It also has a biblical reference. Uh, I don't know if it went by Hebrew name, Arya, but that's, you know, that means lion. I mean, it's, so it could have been his whole persona uh, as he defined it, which is very interesting too. And the language that's so interesting to me, like the the phrase flirty fishing. And I always had a problem with that, not because it's not creepy, but still, and also because it beyond it being creepy, it really entangled people in in these situations where they were being sexually mistreated, sometimes assaulted, in order to bring people into the group. There is a notion with this term that I had first heard in relation to this group, this flirty fishing, that to me has this connotation of when you're fishing, you are going there on purpose to catch a fish. It's not that you're really doing what is true here, which is you are leaving yourself vulnerable to being targeted, to being abused. Um, You're not like with a fishing pole as it was, I'm sure, seen, but you're sitting on the dock of the bay and waiting for a fish to come and just overtake you. And you're supposed to be okay with it because it's all for the purpose of bringing them to a higher spiritual place. But I think, you know, a lot of people I work with grapple with this idea of consent, that they feel they gave their consent for something. And I think that term fishing, like, oh, I was doing this, I was trying to reel people in, can make you feel like you're giving consent for it. But it really is a misrepresentation. What do you think? I think you're th- another um, interesting thing to discuss here is just how the prophet's mythology was presented to us over time in in this indoctrination process. The group's sexual beliefs also developed in a very similar way. Berg himself, in hindsight, we know now, was always a pervert from the beginning. But within the group, sexuality was also very... The sexual doctrines were introduced very slowly, similar to the the general indoctrination process. So when I joined it in 72, you could consider it a very conservative Christianity in terms of sexuality. There was no dating, even dating or kissing of within the group. There was no sexuality within the group except for married couples. So it was very conservative in that way. There was, obviously, we didn't have any contact with outsiders. So that was... A no, 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 no dating or sex with outsiders. But even within the group, if a, two people had an interest in hooking up as a couple, they had to get leaders' permission. And there was no premarital sex. Whereas behind the scenes, Berg was living a very perverted lifestyle already that was not introduced to the members until later. And so I guess a year and a half after I joined, now some of the sexual letters started to come out to start to groom us, to groom the members into Berg's sexual beliefs. So there's a letter called Revolutionary Sex, for example. And in that letter, it's generally just a positive, sex-positive message. Sex is good. God created sex. Nothing wrong with it. In that letter, 
members are now given permission to masturbate. I think the word masturbate is mentioned 70 times or something like that in the letter, um, which was, you know, pardon the pun, a relief to a lot of people because there was this, you know, there's still this conservative idea of sex is sinful kind of thing, right? So he he started to groom members through a whole series of letters. It started with with that letter and then others. And that very soon led to what you talked about, the flirty fishing episode, where he he's now it wasn't, it was in England and he it it became he he introduced it as a method of proselytizing, which is why the fit uh, fishing terminology, fishing metaphor comes from, because we were already trained, you know, to to drop out of society using those verses where Jesus comes across his first disciples and tells them to Simon Peter and his brother and James, whoever, they're fishing, they're fishermen. Jesus comes along, says, you know, follow me and and become fishers of men, right? So this idea of of uh, the the fishing metaphor being a, a metaphor for proselytizing for saving souls. So we are we are already used to that terminology because that was the basis for us to drop out of society, leave your family, leave your job. You're a fisherman. Leave your job as a fisherman and become a fisher a fisherman of uh, of souls. You know. So Berg then uses that in in a sexual way. Develops this sexual proselytizing that they call flirty fishing, which you you mentioned is to save souls, but, and it's primarily women, although it's, you know, both men and women could do this. It, it, It really devolved from, you know, over time, over several years, devolved from just purely saving souls. In other words, he presented it as the ultimate sacrifice. And again, mostly women, because if you see those letters, those pamphlets, and it's got a, a a beautiful naked woman on a fish hook, right? And he uses language of sacrifice, and it's the ultimate sacrifice. Are you willing to give up your life? Are you willing to even give up your wife? Are you willing to give up your body to save souls? And it be, it's he, he turns it into this sacrifice for God, and you know. So then the sexual doctrines go on from there. Um, but again, it was like this slow process. You you know, you know, you've probably heard that metaphor of the boiling pot and the frog. You know, it's just this slow process. If if you're introduced up front, you go running away screaming. But the way it was introduced to us, it's this. By the time you realize that it, it's too late, you're hooked. Wow, are you willing to sacrifice? So interesting. When people run organizations. I'm thinking even people who are political leaders, when they get into the, are you willing to sacrifice? It reminds me of all the political leaders who have sat in a cushy office somewhere and sent other people to war on their behalf, right? They're on the firing lines, they're on the front lines. And the people who are giving the directives don't suffer any of that. And and it is so detached. And I wonder also then, you said there are some men who are involved in that as well. So were were men used as kind of as an ensnare tactic or just the women? I'm curious. I've never actually found out about that. Again, this whole practice sort of developed over time. Initially, it was this sort of selfless sacrifice. So 
the way it started, I mentioned Tenerife. After Berg leaves London, him and his his new wife, Karen Zerby, they go to Tenerife. They kind of experimented with this in England, in London. And then they go to Tenerife, this kind of nightclub hotspot, tourist spot, where European people from all over Europe go there. It's like this real tourist hotspot full of clubs and stuff. So Berg goes there and he brings in sort of his inner circle of mostly women to, and he starts going to clubs, right? And the way that he started it off was they'd go to some nightclub and he'd be there like a pimp surrounded by five, six, seven women, all sexually dressed up. And then he'd be pointing out men in the dance floor for and he'd direct the woman to go up and chat with them and meet them. And so Berg's in there and he's he's buying, you know, drinks for everybody. Of course, he's using the money that the members were tithing, right? <laughs> so it's not even his own money. He's using our and then we don't know about this because it's not revealed to the general members until later. This is all going on behind the scenes. We don't know anything about it until he's ready to leash it, uh, unleash it to everybody and er everybody in the world has to start doing it. But initially it starts off with, and so the men would be there often as more like, almost like bodyguards, you know, to keep an eye on the women. Um, so it was mostly the women doing the flirting and chatting up women. But, but uh, there were, you know, over time in different places, men would sometimes flirt with non-member females too to bring them in but it started off where berg was paint like i said he would buy men drinks he would it was all to get as a recruiting thing but then it turned and where it turned into actual prostitution was at some point so berg leaves tenerife there's all these legal problems they flee but the practice continues and he continues to write letters and instructions and he actually wrote a letter called make it pay make it pay and it specifically instructed women because home you know members living you know didn't have a lot of money and they couldn't afford like where where let's let's say some average commune was trying to emulate and copy what um, Berg's tactics, they couldn't go to clubs and spend all this money like Berg was doing. So Berg turns it and flips it and says, make it pay. You got to make this pay. Make the men pay. If your body is worth it to them, make them pay up front. Li like literally encouraging prostitution. So in other words, um, so men would either pay money or in some cases donate Stop, like it, there had to be some quid pro quo there, you know, so that um, women weren't just giving their bodies to save souls. And it, you know, I've read stories of women where this became very lucrative in places like Hong Kong, for example. You know, women making thousands of dollars. It just degenerated, and, and they started to do escorting and signing up with escorting agencies. It it, it turned into full fledged religious prostitution. I mean, the, the religious part was sort of a side effect. It, it became a, a way to make money, and many, many communes depended on it. Not everywhere. Again, this is a global cult, so things were, could be different in different countries and different communes. So, But in the worst-case situations, you know, I've read some really sad stories of women 
just saying, you know, it started off with these, you know, very good intentions to save souls and just degenerated into us selling our bodies to to pay to support the homes. Oh, it's so incredibly sad. So I I do want to be able to talk about your experience in particular, how you left and your healing since then. I think what sometimes people are curious to hear about before we get into those things is kind of a day in the life. What was life like there? Um, Because it feels different and esoteric, but sometimes it's just a regular day. So what was it like for you? not every day, but sort of a typical day in the group. Yeah. And that this is, again, where the story gets complicated because in different time periods, in different countries, it could be different. In my first early years, when I was single, I ended up in Japan for a year, in the Philippines for a couple of years. In those early years, in the, in the 70s, it was basic, very kind of a regimented schedule where you, you get up, you have morning devotions as a group. People are divided into like work teams to do house chores or whatever. Other people go out for the day, you know, selling literature, um, preaching back into the commune for communal meals. I mean, it, it it was, and I'm speaking as an adult here because what the children experienced was very, very different. Uh, when la- in later years, when children came along, yeah, in those in those years, it was just like I remember on being on the streets of Japan, just all day and all night selling literature, making tons of money selling our pamphlets. It was very lucrative, and that's what you did. I arrived in Japan in like uh, seventy five. Within days, I was on a road on the road with another member for two months. We didn't even see other members. We stayed on the road, living in youth hostels. People would invite us to stay in their homes, and we just made money. We just spent our days and nights. <laughs> we would make so much money, our pockets would be bulging with coins after an hour, and you'd have to go into a bank to change it into paper money. And then we every week we'd send all the money to the to the headquarters in Tokyo. The leaders would. Um, collect the money. It, it, so in those early years, that um, literature was, and it was the same even in the United States. There's a, I, I cite a, a news article from the Eastern sta- uh, United States where uh, the reporter did a calculation of how much money these members were making by selling these mole letters on the street, and it was thousands and thousands of dollars. Now that changed over time as the group got controversial and got chased out and they had to adapt um, fundraising techniques, but they got very sophisticated over time, creating music tapes and videotapes for selling posters. They had, you know, lots of methods for bringing in money. But day to day, I mean, um, I I worked a lot as a, uh, after Japan and after the Philippines, I came back to Canada, and then I ended up um, hooking up with a woman with um, who had two older children here in Canada. We were here for a couple of years. Then we went back to the to the east in '84. We went back to started in Malaysia, ended up in Macau and Hong Kong, Japan again. I spent a year in China. A lot of those years, I, I worked a lot as a cook. I got trained as a cook in the early years in the cult, and that ended up being one of my main jobs 
And during those years, I was back in Canada. I got a driver's license, which became very useful. So I personally spent a lot of time either in the kitchen, working, cooking meals all day, or driving, driving on driving assignments. But the day-to-day routine would be different for different people depending on their what kind of jobs they had. It's hard for me to speak of the children's experiences. And this is kind of one of my um, regrets that I write about in my book is that I did not see life from a child's perspective. I didn't have my own children. I mentioned the woman I hooked up with and we ended up actually getting legally married eventually in Hong Kong. Her older daughter actually refused to come overseas with us and left the cult. Ironically, she left the group almost the same age I was when I joined it. And you might remember Daniela had a similar story. She left as a 15-year-old, which and her mother was 16 when she had her. So I left, I, I joined as a 16-year-old. My stepdaughter saw, she she knew something. She saw something. She was getting the hell out and she wasn't coming with us overseas. She saw that as her way to get out. And she was 15 going on 16. Um, so when we're overseas, my stepson was older. He never lived with us. So I was essentially childless in a, in a way doing my thing, all my jobs that I was assigned to. And I was never involved with childcare and children. And so it was easy for me to not, to just sort of not even think about what they were going through. I didn't see the world through their eyes. It was only in hindsight. And we'll get to that later when I had a breakdown, discovering all this abuse um, and more than I'd ever been aware of. It was because I started to see that life through the perspective of children. And once I did that, that's when all hell broke loose for me because that was shocking. But while I was in the cult, it was just because of my situation. I didn't, you know, like most people had tons of kids. You know, some of those stories where married couples would have eight, nine, 10, 12 kids. So a lot of guys had a lot of kids. I was very rare in that sense. I did not, I mean, I had the stepchildren, but I did not have my own children. And that um, is kind of unique and rare. So it's hard for me. My story is a bit different in that sense. Most males had lots of children. Even the second generation, when they started getting married, they started having tons of kids. So I'm a bit my story is a bit unusual in that sense. It's not totally representative just because because of that. But that also um, is why I, that's partly why I just did not, I didn't see what was going on with the kids from their, from their point of view. Right. I guess I want to say something about that, that I talk a lot with my clients and I've talked a little bit on the podcast about this, that if you find that when you're involved in something, it is in either in retrospect or maybe sometimes you get an inkling of it while you're there, that there's something at odds with your conscience. You get hints of it, maybe glimpses of it, and it feels really wrong, but you are so busy and you're so exhausted and you're so task-oriented because you need to keep up with the commitment that you've made in order to receive the gifts and the promises 
and the protections. But there's like this little voice in you that's thinking something is not right. And it shouldn't be then that if you devote yourself to something that it feels really wrong in your core, because that means you've gotten hints of things. You don't even know the whole story, but people will often have breaks when it all comes crashing down and they realize how much they sort of didn't have a chance to really stop and notice and do anything about because they're so busy on their own hamster wheel. And you can feel like somehow you've done something wrong for not noticing it. But I I don't know if there's any kind of absolution in this conversation, but I want to absolve you of that. I I love that you care to that degree where it caused you to, you know, have a breakdown. No one should have to go through a breakdown, but it clearly shows your conscience. Uh, that says something good about you. But then you can get angry at the people who were doing this to other people or the people who made it okay, or the people who roped you into something that it, you know, if you just take a little step back and you notice you realize the perversion of it all, the, you know, the horror of it all. You should never have to be at odds with your conscience when you get involved in something spiritual. But here it is. And so I'm wondering then for you, if we can get into that now, how you left and the realizations you had and what helped you heal. In case it wasn't clear to listeners, um, that breakdown I referred to happened after I left the cult, long after. But there were events while I was still in it that started to really cause me to doubt and question, and and I knew things weren't right. And so, for example, let's take the this issue of physical abuse, like through corporal punishment. Okay, now I didn't have, like I said, kids myself, and when I hooked up with the, you know, a woman who had two older kids, they were not of the age where. I would have ever thought of spanking them, even though David Berg's letters and teachings taught that all kids, baby from babies to teens, older teens, should be hit, you know, corporal punishment. I never had any opportunity or, or reason to employ that myself, and certainly not with my stepkids. It just never came up. But yet I was aware of those teachings, and I knew that kids were being beat, but I it was one of those things where I had to just put that in the back of my mind. I you know it's it I'm not I don't have my own kids so I'm not dealing with that. That's what the Bible says. I mean again everything's tied to the Bible. Corporal punishment Berg would use Bible verses, you know. Don't you know spare the you know the rod and all that. So in that sense I was aware of abuses but I didn't see it as abuse. You know, so I didn't see corporal punishment as abuse. And of course, sexual abuse of children, that was something happening behind the scenes, behind closed doors. It wasn't in the open where I saw it. So that didn't come into my consciousness. But I'm in Japan. I'd been in Beijing for a year undercover teaching English. I'd come back to Japan and a home I had been in. Um, a commune I, I had been in, there was a, had been a single mother and her teen, a 12, 13-year-old teen. They were Europeans, and they weren't there anymore when I came back. I started asking around, and one of the leaders told me, and he wasn't supposed to tell me because it was all hushed up, was that the teen had committed suicide. So now this was in, um, let's say, 
86, I learned this. May have happened in 85, around some mid-80s. So I didn't know a lot of details. It was all covered up and hushed up, but I had that now information. And what do you do with that? You know, it's like you try to not think of it, but if I did think about it, it would be, well, what what was going on that would lead him? You know, so, I mean, it, it creates doubts and questions. I have no way to process to deal with, so that gets shoved in the back. Now, there had been, and so after that period, now the, there's teens, you know, now the children are becoming teens, they're becoming unruly and hard to control. So now there's this whole new method of controlling the teens, you know, with uh, detention camps and detention training and just strong discipline. And so I be I knew that this was going on. I ended up getting um, transferred to Macau, where I'd been previously, but now I'm back in Macau where the son of David Berg had a commune. When I was there the first time, it was just a farm. He had his kids. My stepson lived there. We visited all the time. It was just so, sort of a normal commune. But when I returned in 1989, I believe it was, it was now the first of what would become many teen detention camps for so-called delinquent teens who were being punished for various reasons for not obeying, for, for, for minor things. And, you know, I'd been aware that these, this was a new thing and it was ex- an experimental thing, but... Um, when I got there, I was shocked because now I one morning I'm working shortly after I'm in the kitchen working. I look out early morning, six in the morning. Here's this teen, like a chain gang of teens, all this really sullen, depressed looking teens walking by. And I asked my helper in the kitchen, an older teen. It turns out that the teens were separated. I, I realized fairly quickly there were two groups of teens, some who were just part of the normal communal life. And then these separated ones. So I asked her, oh, they're going out to do morning chores. It was a bit of a, a hobby farm. There's some horses and etc. And I was like, something's not right there. And then I started to realize that th- then the next thing that happened is I seen this teen girl who looked like maybe 15. There was two teens there I recognized. One, I had lived with her parents in, t- in Japan. They were leaders there. And then another girl I know I recognize from pictures in the group's publications and videos. And they both, one day I see them, they both got signs around their neck saying, I'm on silence restriction, don't talk to me. I mean, this was one of the punishments. If you talk back or you, you know, for whatever reason, they impose these silence instruction, restrictions, they put signs on their necks to humiliate them and nobody, they weren't allowed to talk to anybody. And I've been hearing whispers when I worked with the other teens in the kitchen, for example. I heard of one teen who had been locked in a closet and forced to fast as a punishment. I was hearing these kind of really horrible stories, and I'm trying to put stuff together. But the second of those two girls I saw, I recognized right away with the signs, that was the granddaughter of David Burke. And I just kind of stopped in my tracks because, and I, 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 I write, I get all the details in my book about this because it's so important. Her story is so important to the history of this group. Her father, David Berg's son, oldest son, 
he ended up committing suicide early in the group, basically jumping off a mountain in Switzerland. And that was all covered up. But Berg later admitted it. And I've got the evidence in my book where it was. She gets moved around throughout her childhood. She ends up in Berg's home as a young teen. And basically, he rapes her, rapes her over and over and other young girls in the home, supposedly through these spiritual marriages where he marries. She's terribly abused in the home. And at one point, she's um, subjected to these really violent exorcisms because she was right. All the teens had to keep diary notes that the adults read, which was a method of controlling them. And she was expressing doubts about her grandfather because she saw that he was an alcoholic, that he was this pervert. She was expressing doubts in him. And so they punished her with these really violent exorcisms. They wrote it in letters, in documents. One of them has been so censored, I've never been able to find a copy of it. The other one is now online and and there there's a copy of it and it details very specifically this one of these torture sessions and I use the tor- word torture deliberately because a, a British judge in a custody case who reviewed the whole history of the children of God including her story Mary Berg's story called what happened to her torture and so they beat her and they they put her through all this horrific stuff. And then they they exiled her and sent her to her uncle's farm in Macau. And now that's the girl I'm seeing. I'm seeing her now. So I'd I'd read those letters, but they were so shocking. And they were shocking deliberately because they were meant as warnings. Warnings, first of all, to the children and teens, but to all members. Don't get out of line or this is going to happen to you. So I'd read them, but they're so shocking that you're like, what do you do with that? You know? So again, those are that's another thing that I just kind of file in the back of my mind until that day where now I'm confronting it. I'm confronting this girl. So I see her, I know that she's there, and now I know that they're being isolated, and there was different buildings within this commune. And some of the girls, including her, were in this stone house living separately under their two adult supervisors. One night, I'm in my room and I'm called to go over to that house. Now, I believe the leaders trusted me because I'm skipping a lot of details. But prior to that, I had been in a highly secret home in Hong Kong part of what they called the World Services, which was the financial, administrative, these secret units. I was basically a servant in one of these places for several months. After me and my wife had been forcibly separated, we had to get a divorce so that she could join David Berg's team. So my ex-wife actually was recruited by David Berg's team. Anyway, they, I guess they trusted me enough because I, I go over and I'm told that this couple supervising these girls needed a break and that I was going to be a guard. I was just like a babysitter that night for these girls to keep an eye on them. But there was a special case, and that was Mary Berg, David Berg's granddaughter. The female leader brings me to Mary's room to tell me, you know, give me some instructions. and. What I saw, I mean, it it shocked me to my core. It, it shattered me. That was 
that was what really first broke me and what was the impetus for me to finally try to find a way to get out of this group. But she was tied to the bed. She was delusional. She had had a psychotic breakdown because of all this abuse. I had no experience with mental illness. All I knew was what they told me and what Berg said, that mental illness is just the possession by the devil, that she's possessed. I was in shock. I was being given some instructions on, you know, don't untire. She was incontinent, half naked. It was just a shocking, shocking scene. And I, it's something that's haunted me the rest of my life. It, it's a memory that I've never been able to, to get rid of. And I guess I shouldn't. It, it, and so I told her story in my book, you know, because it is so important. Um, she's a hero because about two weeks after that event, she was sent to the local psychiatric hospital. That's how bad it was. They finally gave in and brought her to the hospital. And a few weeks after that, she was sent back to the States to live with her grandmother. But um, when I heard that she'd been gone, sent to the hospital, it was a big relief for me because I was in turmoil. I didn't know what to do. The, the group, Jonathan Berg, um, David Berg's son, he had contacts with the local police and, and political leaders. I knew that. I didn't. Who was and, and what what could I do? I, 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 I didn't know what to do. Do I go to the police? What I, what do I say? What like who would believe me? You know, I, I was just in super turmoil. So when I learned that she was sent to the hospital, that was a relief. And then about a week later, I was sent to back. I was sent back to Japan. So with that earlier teen suicide I heard about, the the physical abuses I was seeing personally up front. I mean, it was one thing to read a letter by David Berg describing Mary, his granddaughter's torture but to see her and to see it in person i could that's i I couldn't just put that in the back of my head anymore that was there and so it was you know those things plus the fact that it was getting very this was 1990 end of 1990 when that happened i'm back in japan in 91 beginning of 1991 it's getting close to when jesus is supposed to come back according to berg and all the signs are that that's a false prophecy. So all of those things together, it just became overwhelming. And I made, and it's a complicated story of how I eventually got out. And there's twists and turns in how I actually managed to get out and escape it. But I did. By uh, September 1991, I was back in Canada and I was out of the group for good. Okay. So my goodness. So I know we just have a few moments left and I want to be able to talk about the the healing, but I'm really glad that you told that story because as disturbing as it is, those things stay with you. And what you were able to do just now by talking about it was to honor her and to honor her experience and to say this happened, this awful thing happened. And, you know, people like David Berg don't feel responsibility for this and they don't feel wrong for it and they go off just feeling still entitled and and detached and and again going back to this idea of the walking wounded some people are much more wounded than others but i'm i'm really glad that you have been able to put that into words so that you can give testimony to it you can give proof to it you can say this happened and i saw it and it is 
it is horrific and it's traumatizing. And that does mean that you're going to need to get support for that along with other things. So as we're finishing, if you can just detail in just briefly, what has been helpful to you in your healing? What have you needed to know? What has, what have you needed to get support for? Or is it just being able to talk about it? What, what's been good for you? And I really must, even if I run out of time to tell that, I have to just say about Mary Berg that when I mentioned she was a hero, she was a a, a witness in the British case exposing what her grandfather did to her, which is what, so she spoke up publicly. She, that's why she's such a hero because she and other, and, and some of her other peers appeared in court in England to testify against her grandfather and the cult and the current leaders, Karen Zerby and Stephen Kelly, who the British judge called just as guilty as David Berg for standing by and watching his depravity. And the thing um, is that they are still leaders of the cult. They've never been held accountable. They've escaped justice. And this is a cry from all the children born and raised in that group who've never had any justice and this story has been ignored when um, a high-profile murder-suicide happened with Karen Zerby's son. He wanted to kill her as revenge, to kill the cult by killing his mother. He couldn't get to her. He killed himself and, and his former nanny. That made headlines around the world. But even then, and that happened in the United States, the FBI closed. They investigated that case, but closed it. They never followed up. Ricky Rodriguez was probably the best chance to bring his mother, Karen Zerby, to justice. But he gave up. He he was so frustrated by the lack of interest in the case and the society in general ignoring all these children who were abused in this group. He gave up. He was the best chance, I believe, to get legal justice against Karen Zerby. So I wanted to make that point um, and, um, because that's hanging out there. There's been a few cases of people getting justice against their perpetrators, but the leaders of this group have escaped justice and they fly under the radar even to this day. And time's running out because they're older and who knows. But um, And there's a lot of reasons why justice is difficult. But um, in my own case, my own recovery, it took me 13 years after leaving the cult because I focused on university, trying to survive. I didn't know how to deal with this. It wasn't the internet at first. My compulsion to tell my story never left me. I tried several times, and it was that compulsion, I've got to tell this story, not just mine, but this bigger story I'm telling, um, to honor as a way to almost make up for the fact that I was in this abusive cult. I was a part of it. Even if I did not commit direct child abuse against any child, I'm still culpable for being in the group. That's how I felt and I still feel. Part of my recovery was to acknowledge that, first of all, to admit that, and then to fight like hell any way I could to support the second and third generations, which I've done through writing and academic articles. And I continue to try to expose that to honor their stories and to say because there there's a uh, there are there's a cult what I call academic cult apologists who have rejected the stories of 
cult survivors who don't believe it, that say they're unreliable witnesses, that they're lying, exaggerating. And this infuriates me. And so I've written, you know, an academic article in the uh, Cultic Studies Review challenging one of these books in my own memoir. I expose and criticize several of these academics who downplay what happened to the children of the children of God. And that keeps me going. That's part of my recovery. I had a breakdown. I was diagnosed with PTSD and then fibromyalgia, which is related to the PTSD. I've suffered physically and psychologically, and I still to this day suffer from those consequences. But this activism, fighting back, speaking out, that is part of my recovery. It's necessary for me. I became a lawyer, but this was more important to me. I couldn't live with myself if I just buried this. And I would say 99% of the first generation, the people who joined it, are either in denial or are so embarrassed and ashamed that they won't speak out. So there are very few. There's a handful of people like me of my generation who joined it, who are speaking out, who've tried to do things over the years to expose the group. We're in a very, very tiny minority. And so that's part of what's driven me. And it's part of my recovery. I don't think I could live with myself if I didn't do this. So thank you. I mean, what you're doing is so honorable and it shouldn't take bravery, but it does because it's hard to look at it. It's hard to look at yourself in the mirror, even though, right, it didn't happen at your hands. But when you're a good person, you feel like somehow it happened on your watch, that somehow you were involved in something or complicit and I don't think you could have changed what was happen happening there. I don't think you could have prevented it. Um, but still, when you're involved in something and you know how wrong it is, you wonder if you helped the cause or furthered the cause. But I think what you're doing now is really beautiful. Going back to this idea of people being under the radar, the more they're talked about, the less they're under the radar. And so you're shining a light. It, that's necessary. And thank you. And I'm so glad that you are devoted to that and that you're able to use your voice to make a difference, but also really educate people and not have David Berg and others simply go off and get away with it because it's all done in silence and in secret and in the shadows. You are really putting a spotlight on it, which I really value. And so Thank you. It was really good and important to have this conversation with you. And I hope to talk to you again. Great. Thank you so much, Rachel. One more thing before you go. someone like Perry is very, very important. He has a big job that he's taking very seriously. And I do hope with the pressure he puts on his own shoulders to do education and prevention and talk about his experiences, he also is able to find time to just relax and enjoy and have fun. It's just hard, I know, when you're on a mission to be able to use your experience 
to help others, and also to honor the experience of countless others who were abused and who you saw firsthand being abused. Perry's experience is really one of thousands from this particular very heinous group. And there was something very powerful about hearing from someone who was born male, who then got involved in this group and had to deal with how women were treated and how girls were treated and how things were made okay that should never have been made okay. This is yet another group where the rules just don't make sense, where you're going to sometimes come across, in a lot of these cultic groups, things that just don't come together, things that are made okay, that are awful, and things that are not okay, that are really fine. Case in point, within this particular group, The women are encouraged to do this thing called flirty fishing. And it is okay to use your body or to have not use your body, but really have it be used to recruit people into a cult. And for men to give their wives over to other men for the purpose of recruitment. And that the leader was doing a lot of things with women who we should never have been doing things with. And somehow that was all okay. And in fact, it was kind of romanticized in these illustrations put out by the group and the way it was all talked about, that it was somehow spiritual, holy. But you had to ask permission to have a boyfriend? And you had to ask permission to go on a date with anyone? You had to ask permission to have a girlfriend. So having kind of a sweet relationship, that's something that the leader might not have approved of, might not have given you permission for. But it was okay for your body to be used by random people who you may or may not ever see again and where there were no safeguards about how they were going to be treating you and treating your body. And so when people leave groups like this, it's very hard sometimes to be in the world because the things that were offered as equations that somehow made sense in the group didn't translate to the world outside. And so random sexual experiences were okay, but within a relationship, not okay. Well, how do you make sense of that when you leave? How do you safeguard yourself and your body when you leave? How do you learn, if you're growing up in there also as a male, what women really should be treated like and that it is okay for them to say no and that also needs to be honored and for women to be able to learn that it's okay for them to say no and that should be honored. Setting boundaries is something that a lot of people have trouble with when they leave cults, but especially groups like this where there really were no boundaries you were allowed to set. And so I give Perry so much credit for doing what he does, educating the public, being so sensitive to what he experienced there and wanting people to know about it. For the people who remain voiceless, powerless, for the people who just didn't make it out of the group, 
And he is giving their experience the respect it deserved. He's giving them a voice. Thank you so much to Perry for speaking with us today. Take good care, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.